0: On this episode of the podcast, I wait all of four minutes to insult our guest. Jared gets emotionally triggered because no one's letting him talk. And we spend an hour with legendary iconist, Jamie Mustard, who shares his remarkable life story, his belief in the importance of hardship and the ground truth from ground zero, Portland, Oregon. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm Paul Tulin.
1: And this is the best pandemic ever.
0: Gentlemen, we're recording.
1: We're on. Uh, So, once again... Nobody say anything.
0: Just everybody stop talking, because this is going nowhere
1: fast. Hold on, wait. And you start talking in my intro. Oh, yeah. Well, I can't help myself. Listen, I get it. I get it. You You won't put me in my place here in front of Jamie Mustard, and that's what I want to start off with here, is that we have the legendary, the iconist Jamie Mustard, who is a master of marketing, which is sounds it's really that's a small thing that he does he is uh, much better than that and it goes without saying he's a much better person than myself and paul and again we're having another top tier guest I, I think a lot of people right now paul are just interested in tanking their reputations and their careers by spending time with a couple of guys like us but uh you know there's a counter narrative to that too and i think that they also realize that this is the best pandemic ever and who wouldn't want to be on the show is that the one we're going to go with your guys it's yeah,
2: been, uh, <laughs> it's been yeah. pretty life changing. Am I supposed to talk yet? Sure. Okay. The, yeah. I uh, know it's, it's been pretty life changing for me. I think it's funny that you said I'm kind of a marketing guru. I, I I abhor the I I actually abhor the word marketing because typically when I get on the phone with a CEO, whether it's a two million dollar company or a two billion dollar company, and I start using that word, uh, they get the shakes. I can see like twitches because oh, yeah. they associate the word with. Uh, breaking even or losing money.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. Right? No, you do so much more than that. Give, give us a quick, yeah. you know, you've got like a six-page bio here and that'll probably take up most of the podcast for I were to read that. <laughs> it's great. You're just cool. very accomplished. Give us a high level that, you know, really sums up uh, what you do, Jamie, because I think it is important for people to, to, uh, to take a look at who you are. Uh, so that they can kind of trail uh, your, your popularity and reputation falling off after this podcast. <laughs> like <laughs> this guy was on the mountaintop yeah. and then he went on the we best band ever podcast. We will,
2: not end this, we will not end this podcast until one of us gets canceled. Correct. Right? Yeah, that's the um, goal. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could say that my, I you know, I, I joke with people and it, it, this is kind of a joke, but there's a lot of truth in it. I tell people a lot of times that you could say that I'm an intellectual Forrest Gump. I mean, that's really been my my life, you know. Um, you know, to kind of like, rather than to talk about the things that I've done, it'd be probably more interesting to kind of summate some of the things that kind of led, you know, led me on the journey that I'm, I'm going down. And one of them is I grew up kind of, I mean, uh, in abject poverty in and around downtown Los Angeles, abandoned by my parents, in and out of institutional environments, not going to school, uh, um, you know, levels of poverty and neglect that... I, I just don't you just can't even imagine it. No one that meets me would ever imagine that I come from that. and that I was uh, semi-literate into my late teens. And then I uh, ended up graduating from the London School of Economics. And now I live this crazy life where I advise everything from the world's leading artists, CEOs, brands, companies on the subject of how to connect in a world overloaded with content. And I'm also, uh, an art director. So I do a lot of art direction. I just finished my first children's book, which I had illustrated in, uh, Italy, which I wrote with my, my developmental editor and partner, Shaw Thomas. That is at going to publishers right now. It's called the world is out there. Um, and, uh, that was illustrated in Italy. I just finished writing, um, my first graphic novel, which is my my childhood set in a dystopian sci-fi alternate universe. And I'll begin uh, illustrating that in January. So, uh, yeah, so so I have this really weird life where I'm this communications consultant, a writer. I have a book out that's, that's won some awards it's a, um, that's in bookstores all over the country called The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out. And some really amazing people like the publisher of Forbes, Said so I cracked the code, and Dan Pink. I uh, got incredible artists at the highest level that have endorsed the book, and and uh, yeah, my I, I my life is all over the map because I I do all this art direction stuff, and I work with musicians, and and then I'm over here and telling you know I'm I've got a I'm talking to some of the top brand creatives and in influencer marketing at Nike uh, in the next couple of weeks. I'm I'm guest lecturing in a class for user interface at Pratt. In the next couple of weeks, all on Zoom. So yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm I do a lot of things.
0: Yeah. So I, I think one of the things people would really want to know how you overcame it was, you know, being associated, um, I assume a family association with one of the suspects in the murder of Mr. Body in the library with the candlestick. Oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, clearly, yeah, that, that, that clearly of- that's, that's just- gonna be the first thing. <laughs> that, <I> mean, <laughs> I didn't think we'd go there. Oh. oh, yeah. I, figured, I only didn't because I thought, well, everybody asked him that. But I, I will say, let me let me say this. And all of that stuff that you just described, the thing that stands out more than anything else that I'm like, hey, I'm going to get that tattooed on my chest in honor of Jamie is the book that you wrote called The World is Out There. Yeah, because we talk all the time about, you know, connectivity and turning off the TV, putting down your phone. If you want to be a better citizen, then get out in the world and be one. And it sounds like that's what that's all about. And to me, that's going to be in all the things that you just described, which are all seem remarkable. That's going to be an incredible legacy if I'm interpreting what that book is really all about.
2: Let's talk about that right now for a second. And at some point, I'd like to talk about, you know, the city that I'm living in right now, which is is on the media under siege. And then there's my day to day experience. And I think that would be an interesting thing to talk about. But I, I haven't talked about the world is out there. Uh, publicly at all yet so i think the fact that you glommed on to that let's let's bring that up for a second the the way the world is out there and i think that this the name of your podcast the best pandemic ever which is the best podcast name ever yes um, wait wait is, is, pause is, can we
1: settle on that for a second here because the iconist jamie Mustard yeah. just said this is the best podcast name ever
2: I keep I keep telling people I'm going on this podcast called The Best Pandemic Ever, and I get like I get audibles every time I say it. So there's something about your name that is uh, the name of this podcast that is resonating with people in every walk of life. Mm. Love it, yeah. But but you know uh, you know what the, you know it's really interesting this concept of the world is out there, and then also the name of your podcast, Best Pandemic Ever, because what happened is I was supposed to be traveling most of May. I was in London um speaking at the largest scripted drama conference in the world called Content London. I was on stage with the star of Mindhunter, who's a friend of mine who I write about in the book. We were being interviewed live on stage for that conference. And then I was in Vancouver and then uh, lockdown happened. You know, and I was and I was supposed to be traveling all of May, and it was like really the the, the really the kind of momentum of my book blowing up. I was I was going to do a reading on Shakespeare and Co. on the Upper West Side. I was speaking to five hundred design students in Dallas. I was going to do this amazing futurist talk in downtown Los Angeles with the Googleplex architect, uh, Clyde Wilkinson. Like it was just like this, like, and then boom, everything canceled. And, uh, and that was a little heartbreaking too, because, you know, you, you works, it takes the work that goes into making a book and, and, and promoting a book and, and, and publishing a book. And then, so it was like a real, real kick, you know, I mean, can I say punch in the dick? Oh yeah. Okay. Yep.
1: Yeah. Feel free, okay. man.
2: So and, real. and so, you know, um, and I'm somebody that's been through a lot of adversity. So when I, I can, I can take some licks and, and get triggered. And it was a it was a real, it was a real just smackdown of just incredible proportions. And my agent called and I had told her about a book the year before, which I'd sent her a draft of. And she said, this is a piece of shit. Don't ever send me something this bad again. And it was called uh, The World is Out There. And and I said, listen, I'm sorry if you didn't like the draft." I'm trying to finish the book that we're working on. And I'm, you know, we were at the point, that point we're like leading up to printing and audio and all these things going on uh, leading up to last summer, leading up to the release of the book in October. So I just didn't have the time to focus on it. Well, she called me right after lockdown. And she said, you know, that idea that you had last year that, you know, I said, you know, uh, wasn't good enough and never sent it something like that, or was a piece of shit. um, If you're actually willing to work, on that idea, I think there'd be a lot of interest in that book right now because of what's going on in the world. And and um, so I spent, I that was my first COVID project was to just dive in and to forget everything that was going on around me and to just dive in to making this thing good uh, with my, who and I'm co-writing that again with my developmental editor, Shaw Thomas. And the story is about this kid named Harry who's got this giant Afro that's bigger than his entire body, okay, Harry. Uh, and he one day it's, and he's got screens all around him in this room, all this lights and screens. And this one day, this talking lizard shows up from overseas named Finn. And he's got this crazy kind of mohawk type Finn. And he says, uh, hey, man, uh, what are you doing with all these screens? The world is out there. And it keeps repeating. And it's this conversation they have about this lizard, this talking, and the kid's kind of interested and impressed by the talking lizard at first, but then he quickly wants to get back to whatever he was doing. And, uh, but it's really um, this kid, this lizard trying to convince this kid who's just covered by these screen lights at every angle um, that about the visceral experience of living, not just getting out in the world, but like Skinning your knees and smelling the salt air and the sand between your toes, like the physical, corporal experience of living, which uh, and I didn't really. And it wasn't until I finished it that I that I really understood why my agent wanted me to, why she thought that would be important to put out there right now, because it's not just important for kids; it's an important message for everyone right now. Yeah. So yeah, so that's so that's yeah. So so that and then that led me down a chain of art projects of things to do and occupy my time during the best pandemic ever that have really, I would almost say, altered the course of my life. You know, um, uh, I slowed down. I was kind of getting to the point where I was about to start just churning out product. And something about the slowdown process made me have some really epiphanous ideas about the quality of things that I wanted to put out there. Which way I wanted to push my career in terms of all the things that my book was bringing into me, and you know, you—it's kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek title, the best pandemic ever. But and I know there's a lot of horrible things that have happened in the world as a result of it. But I have to say, COVID nineteen, ironically, might have been the best thing that ever happened to me. Hmm. So, so given given your what you've overcome in your life, Jamie, what why do you think?
0: The moment when that lockdown came, it was so catastrophic for you. I mean, you've really endured some hard shit. Yeah. I mean, and this was just cancellation. But the way you articulated it, it was pretty it was pretty catastrophic.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, you can't grow up like I grew up and not have. I mean, in this way, you know, I'm friends with this military doctor who I was telling you about before the show, who's a top Psycho civilian psychologist for PTSD and moral injury for the military. And she's become a really close friend of mine. I helped her brand her new book, which is about that. It's called warrior. And, um, uh, she and I talk weekly. We're close friends and I've learned in my conversations with her, you know, uh, a lot about PTSD. And so the, one of the things I would say is that growing up the way that I did, I've learned, I've had to hug the cactus and face the fact in the last couple of years only because I was never willing to look back until the last couple of years. I would never have admitted this and uh, until re- uh, probably uh, I wasn't even willing to go to therapy until the last year and a half. And in that therapy, this therapist said to me after I told her my story, she said to me, "I, you know, after a month of it. I'm going to have to, you know, I'm diagnosing you with, you know, severe PTSD. And I laughed at her thinking that it was the most ridiculous thing that you could say ever. And uh, she looked at me with the most incredible doe-like stunned eyes and said, how could you not? How could you not? And it was one of those moments in my life where I was like, okay, well, you know, I just had to, so I've been going through this phase of like looking at my, uh, looking at my life and to answer your question uh, growing up that, you know to be in a pointed way growing up in, with all the barriers and various physical and psychological violences that were and poverty that were and illiteracy that were the beginning part of my life um, it leaves you scarred broke you don't walk through something like that and you don't in, in my case I don't in my current world meet a lot of people that come from the circumstances that I've come from. So, um, you, when you get a loss or when something bad happens to you, you don't just experience that loss of what's happening to you right then and there. It puts you back to being nine years old mm. when something happened to you there. So you, you, when you get accumulatedly kicked in your face for the first half of your life, When you get cumulatively kicked in the face for your first half of your life, if you get kicked in the face again as an adult, no matter what you achieve, uh, you can get what you can experience emotion and triggers that are far greater than what's actually going on in front of you.
0: So just baggage. I mean, that's just just baggage.
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know if that's the answer that you were looking for, but that's... No, no. I was just wondering because, you know, it it seems to
0: me that resilience would be something that you're hardwired for because clearly you've overcome a lot of stuff, and so way you had said that, I was just, I mean, I was just curious. And I'll, I'll, I'll ask you. Can I say one of,
2: thing? One more. Well, let me say one yeah, more of, thing about that. The reason I answered the, that question that way is because people meet me and they think that uh, I don't have troubles or a care in the world, right? That I went through this crazy experience and I'm cool and I'm just fun, you know? And I guess I, in a lot of ways I am, but I want people to know that kick the shit out of me, okay? And I'm still doing what I'm doing. Like, I don't want people to think that I got through that unscathed. I want people to know that I do everything that I do with the shit kicked out of me. That's really important because I think that people, otherwise people just think that I skated on through, just skated by. And uh, no, I want people to know you can have the shit kicked out of you and still do dynamic, incredible things with all the scars, with all the shrapnel in your leg, with all of it, you can still do incredible things. That's important. I, other because people just think I float, and I don't. So, so yeah. At, when we started out on this,
0: one of the things that we observed, we talked a lot about at the very beginning of the best pandemic ever, was um, the how it revealed fragility and a lack of resilience. And we, you know, we we theorized a lot about how you know how did we get here? And I get it. I understand it. Everybody, as they grow, wants to try and reduce suffering, hardship, make life easier for the next generation. That makes perfect sense. But there's a break point where that, you know, there's a tipping point where there's a diminishing return on doing that. And I think what you're articulating is kind of that same message. It's like, hey, man, there is tremendous value in hardship that makes you better. And I think you're a little bit of a kind of a a living example of that without trying to blow too much sunshine up your ass. I mean, I think that's I think that's pretty much.
2: I mean, I, I mean, you know, coming from you as a, a green beret, it's a little humbling to hear that. You know, you know what I mean? Because um, I would say that about you, right? Yeah, but I've
0: been a very shitty green beret. I mean, let's <laughs> just, get that, just get that out there. Not a good one. <laughs> there's there's um, far better men than I am.
2: So I think what you're touching. I think what you're touching on, and I'd love Jared to weigh in on this. You know, too, is like, is that you know, we we're, we've gotten to this point in our society, right? And this is important for executives and leaders and companies. As well as a societal point where we're equating physical hardship, which is what I went through, uh, in ways that I still have physical scars from, okay, with you know being insulted and creating safe space for people, and you know now insulting someone or having someone hear words that are difficult for them to hear is now equ- uh, equivalent to physical suffering, and I think that that's dangerous. And I think it it goes to the point of the pandemic, like in certain ways, the beginning days of COVID were very difficult for me financially, very difficult for a, p- a lot of the people I knew financially. Everyone was fried. I'd go out to the grocery store and I didn't there was one six week period where every time I went out to the grocery store every week, I saw some almost violent altercation, some, you know, psychological Altercation, whether it was the grocery store or getting takeout. I mean, it was just people were fried and it was really hard on me, but I'll tell you, it was a lot less hard on me than I think most because compared to what I had to endure in my childhood, it was a walk through the tulips. So I think you make a really good point, Paul, in the sense that, you know, uh, I'm able to steal myself and deal with difficult circumstances in a way that's 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 proven very useful for me, if it because it didn't break me, it breaks most people, but it didn't break me, so I'm able to deal with those circumstances where I feel like if you have a society of people or employees where everything, all we're concerned about is everyone feeling safe all the time and the language we use, um, I think that you uh, potentially weaken people for difficult circumstances. That's what I, I thought of when you when you said that. Yeah, yeah, and. I,
0: and, and I think I'm sorry I just one one last thought and then I'll, and then I'll then I'll shut up um, you know and I, and I, I think that um, uh, you know there's there's just again I think a lot of people um, take a very accusatory or negative view of how we've gotten to this point of fragility but again I you know I, I understand how we got there it's all many times these things are well intended I'll give you a quick example so when you stand in the hot Sun in Afghanistan you um, and you step into the shade of a tree, you feel a geothermal difference. You value the presence of that tree, right? So those people in Afghanistan, they really value trees. They build compounds around them, they build their families around them. Here in the United States, right, I have a tree in my front yard, aside from the fact that my wife is a complete tree hugging lunatic. um, you know, I I don't value that in the same way because I go from my air-conditioned home to my air-conditioned car to my air-conditioned office. But the reality is the person who created air conditioning, they didn't do that because they wanted to make me disconnect from an uh, from an appreciation of the tree. So that disconnection doesn't necessarily come from a negative place. They created air conditioning because they were trying to make my life better. And that kind of matters because if you have an appreciation of how we got here, then you don't have as much anger and negativity against, you know, uh, against reversing that trend. Is that... Did I just ramble, or does that make it no?
2: I mean, it makes total sense, and I. But I think you know. But I also think what's interesting about that coming from you know a Green Beret is this: when you go through Green Beret training, or you're training Green Berets, one of the things you're training them for is pain and adversity. So that when they're in a real life circumstance where they're do they're dealing with pain and adversity, it is familiar to them. I do agree with you that people that are trying to protect people that there's often uh, a good intention involved. But I also think there's often communal narcissism involved. Mm. It's about talking down to people, it's about making them feel silly. And then I think it affected the election. I think that, you know, I'm a left, I'm a liberal leaning person. Okay. That being said, I, I think that the control of language, um, uh, you know, uh, certain words, I think, you know, I think working class white people in America, um, got very sick of liberal elites talking down to them. And one could say that I'm a liberal elite. So, you know, I'm uh, talking down to them. And I think that that has a lot to do with the election of Donald Trump. And I think that, you know, when we choose to communicate, what's the end game? I think you made a really good point about a lot of times, you know, trying to create safe space, trying to make things easy for people, has a good intention behind it. Sometimes it doesn't. Ultimately, What's the end game? What are we trying to do? In my view, we're tr- like I'm for anything that makes that it unites us as people. Anything where we can, I where I can look at somebody that's completely different than me. They're an uh, middle uh, 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 an evangelical uh, grandmother uh, living in Iowa, right? I want to be able to look at her and go, What do we have to talk? We're, what do we have to talk about? What, what do we have in common? How can I be united with her? What kind of incredible conversation could I have with this woman uh, rather than what's divisive about us? So I'm interested in in what in the things that we all have in common, because I in my life, what's been striking about my life is how much understanding diversity and being comfortable with diverse amounts of people that would that would uh, should be foreign to me and and be othered to me have I've learned from and had incredible relationships with. Um, So, uh, yeah, I I, hope. Yeah, no, you're not.
0: I've traveled the world, you know, in some pretty horrible places and been, you know, with people that should be 180 degrees from me. And I'll tell you again, I'm going to go back to your original thesis. The world is out there. You know where you find that common ground. You know where all that happens in the real world, when you're having real conversations with real people in real time, where you're actually physically, emotionally, psychologically Spiritually accountable to them because they're right there, not in the bullshit virtual space. That's never going to happen there.
2: Yeah, so, and let's let's let, let's take let's take an, let's take some like real life, um, exa- examples of that. So one yeah. real life example is the example I gave you when you're training a green beret or your green beret. You train them with pain so that they when it, so when they get into a situation that's adverse, they're used to it. It's familiar to them. It, that's just an extension of going to the gym. You don't. You can never grow as a person. If you don't experience discomfort in a lot of ways, you could say there are two factors that led to the opportunities that I have. And my life is still what I consider. I'm not on top of anything. I consider my life. I've worked all my life for opportunity and I live in a place of opportunity. Okay, so I ask myself, what's created those opportunities for me? And I think there's two things. Uh, one is just curiosity. In those neighborhoods where I grew up, it was Korean people, there was Armenian people, there was Guatemalan people, there was Nicaraguan people, there was Mexican. I got Mexican people. I got very comfortable with a lot of diverse people around me. And um, so uh, that sparked my curiosity. At the time, it was a living hell and I hated it. But I'm pretty comfortable being uncomfortable. So the other thing is I got really comfortable being in mental and physical pain for long periods of time. So I think for most people that, that when in that's extreme, a lot of the people I came up with, it breaks them. Okay. In my case, um, it just scarred me and it, I I'm very comfortable being uncomfortable and like going to the gym. Um, you have to experience discomfort to improve yourself, right? You have to, if you're learning something new, if you're working your muscles, if you're, um, uh, learn, you know, uh, Uh, edifying yourself as a human being anytime you're taking on something new and you're not good at it or you're working a new physical muscle mental muscle that's uncomfortable okay so uh that's how we grow so the i do think there's often a good intention behind it but i also think it's dangerous because um if people don't understand that in order for them to grow and expand in the world they they have to constantly. You know, the only way you know you're growing is if you're experiencing discomfort. I'm once I get comfortable, I'm like, what's the next thing I have to learn? I was a guy that grew up. I didn't get any lessons at anything. I wasn't in school. I was semi-literate till I was seven, 19 years old. Okay, and so, um, uh, I just I just think that. Uh, so what I the baby steps that it took me to start growing and improving myself you know, the first step I took was like, let me just take remedial classes to not be illiterate anymore. Okay. Um, but that was really, really uncomfortable for me. Okay. Um, and now I'm at a point where the minute I get comfortable with anything, um, I'm looking for that next thing to be uncomfortable doing so that I'm growing. I mean, I literally look at putting myself in the next uncomfortable situation as my process. Okay. And, um, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, there was something else. Oh, no, no, that's yeah. that's why
1: you joined the best. That's why you came on the best pandemic ever, isn't it? You want to put yourself in an uncomfortable position <laughs> so that you could grow. Yeah, no, that's,
0: that's a bad yeah. position. That's different. You're no. confusing oh,
1: this. Yeah. Well, but but Paul should be encouraged, and you should too, Jamie. Because I mean, Paul's still semi lettered and he's what, eighty seven? No, wait. Yeah, Paul, yeah. Oh, fifty two. Uh,
0: I'm. I'm. Yep. I'm motoring yeah, saw, right along. But you make a, yeah. You make a good. So then, you make a good great, point.
2: Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Stamp, let me put a stamp on that. Here's the stamp on that. I spent the first half of my life as somebody that was not nurtured and had no opportunity to develop any talents whatsoever, okay? Now I'm in this weird position in my life where all people do is point out how talented I am at so many different things. The irony in that is beyond me. So when you experience an irony like that, you're like, how does that happen? How does it that you don't go to get one lesson growing up? Maybe I took karate class for three months and I failed at trumpet. OK, uh, but but uh, how, how how is it that you go from that to being constantly accused of being overly talented and having too many different types of talents? I would say discomfort.
0: And, and there's a flip side to, to that whole equation, too, which is it's you know, you, you're right. So Green Beret training, just like the situation that you grew up in, breaks most people. So does Green Beret training. I mean, we don't get a lot of people out of the number of folks that show up to try. We don't get a lot that we don't crank out these huge numbers because it, it, it's, it's kind of hard. Um, but there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's another part of that equation, I think, that has become problematic, which is we are uncomfortable with telling people that they didn't make it. So we got to tell them that you're OK, too, and that, you know, you don't have to put yourself in positions where you fail. So that only, I think, exacerbates what you're describing.
2: I think that there's a middle ground. I, I think that, you know, I, I would not wish what I lived through on my worst enemy. Okay. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think there's a lesson to be learned in uh, invade, you know, being, you know, invaded by diversity, which I hated at the time, but when I got to Europe and I started traveling the world, I'd grown up around so many different kinds of cultures, there wasn't too many situations where I was uncomfortable with people being different than me. It was very like, oh, okay, well, everyone's always been different than me, so these are just like those people, right? Uh, But I think that there's a middle ground where we can understand that, you know, uh, being willing to experience discomfort, maybe not to the level that it breaks you, uh, is a good thing in terms of making our way and getting along in the world. It doesn't have to be Green Beret training. It doesn't have to be surviving severe poverty and neglect. But maybe there's a lesser version that can improve us as a wider collective. And, And I guess that's the point that I'm trying to make. Cause there's no difference between that and then going to the gym, right? When you you don't get in shape if you don't make your muscles hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you so, know, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm done. I was gonna say what's interesting about that,
1: the muscle analogy too, is that uh, you know, the only sport that I really put a lot of time and energy into for about the past 22 years has been cycling, road cycling, mountain biking. And one of the biggest problems for guys when they get, start training is overtraining. You'll find this in a lot of endurance sports, a lot of athletes in general, because there's this common idea that, well, if you keep on pushing yourself and keep breaking things down, you're gonna get stronger and better, to a degree. But where you really recover is in the rest, is when you stop after the stress and the strain. And it's that time of saying, okay, now's this time to rest and rebuild. So it's you have to push yourself to a point where you break everything down, but then you also have to put in the same amount of time, if not a little more, to recover, to let that new muscle form, to let that new stress level or that new uh, threshold really take hold. And this is something that we have diminished in our society in general, right? I mean, I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. And that is one of those things where you're torn. You're thinking, hey, look, you know, I want my kids to be happy and healthy. At the same time, I'm also like, I want my kids to understand that, you know, not everybody's going to get a trophy. It's like if you suck at this and you really want it, you have to work for it. But if you suck at this and you don't really want it, you're not getting anything for it. Just move on and do something else, right? You know, it's, it's the we have to let the kids fall down, make mistakes, do all of those things. Otherwise, they grow up to be adults still acting like children, throwing temper tantrums thinking they're going to get their way. And sadly, in our culture today, a lot of them are getting their way. And that is what I think we're seeing unravel and has been exacerbated by the pandemic as well.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, there's a couple of things I would say about that. You know, one is on the trophy. Well, to quote Jerry Maguire, you know, I would say this. OK, uh, we live in a cynical, cynical world with tough competitors. Mm-hmm. OK, and we need to prepare people for that. Yeah, And it was really interesting. I was, I had this, uh, was dating this woman years ago. We're still close friends and, and she had a young son and he was really insecure. And at the time I was, uh, uh, hanging out with these Portland MMA guys. And so I said, well, you know, let's get him into martial arts. I've never met an insecure black belt. Let's, you know, so now that kid is, this is when I first moved to Portland. He was four. I've been here for 11, 12 years. He's 15. Uh, and he's, you know, uh, really, you know, he's a high level wrestler. He's a something in jujitsu. He's a boxer. He's, he's got a lot of martial arts skills at this point. Um, and, um, but he also goes to the pot. He goes to Benson. He goes to a polytechnic high school. He's a very bright kid. But I remember er- early on when he was about seven, we went to a jujitsu match in Portland and he was always, uh, uh, big for his age. So he was like competing against kids uh, that were based on weight, but that were way older than him. So he would get in the early part of his martial arts career now he dominates at wrestling matches and things like that. But back then he was getting his his perpetual ass handed to him. OK, and we were at this one jujitsu match in like Beaverton in Oregon, the suburb of Portland. And he got just the crap kicked out of him three matches in a row. And at the end, they handed him a trophy. This kid's seven years old. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> like, a, like a medal right, for showing yeah. up. He turned uh, bright beet red. This medal was like a big plastic medal. And he took it in his hands. And he just pre- he cracked it in half. He was so grossed out and disgusted that they gave him a medal for losing. <laughs> and, you know, his dad was there. And his mom were just mortified because he did it right out in the like bullpen and all bull the other people. And they pulled him aside and they and they were like, hey, you know, we understand that you don't feel good about getting the medal. But and you don't have to take the medal. But next time, maybe don't break it in front of everyone and <laughs> crap on it right in front of the people that gave it to you. Let's do that when we get outside. But the, but the point is that this kid didn't want the medal. He knew he knew he was being cheated. He knew he hadn't earned it. Yeah. And. So I think, you know, and I, uh, you know, it's interesting, this discussion, because I, I think Paul made a really good point. And he kind of surprised me when he said it about, you know, so people didn't make air conditioning to make us soft. Okay. But I do think I am con- very, very concerned about what we see in our university system today about how we have to, like, make everything safe and easy for people, because I don't think the world is safe and easy. No. So we need to prepare people Uh, for it not being safe and easy. And and the university is the last stop before you get out into the world. So uh, it makes me very concerned that this movement of making everybody overly safe and safe words and kind words is coming from uh, the the university system. It's coming from uh, the left. And what's so ironic about it is... If you look at why a lot of these university professors that are trying to make everything overly safe, a lot of these professors have tenure. Well, why do the, why does tenure exist? Tenure exists. So you can exists. say whatever you want, right? <laughs> yeah. So you can say whatever you want and not get fired. These guys have jobs for life. So how so these guys who are in positions where they can never get fired, so that they can have the freedom to be argumentative. To go against the grain in our society to progress the society or forward, they're all these guys. Their jobs are protected by that system. Are now trying to create these spaces that over coddle kids that are under preparing them for the world. So maybe I'm being uh, you know that's the way that I see it. I'd be really curious. I like the fact that Paul said, "Hey, there's good intentions here," you yeah. know. Um, so you know, I'd be curious what you you know about your thoughts on that. So I, I guess.
0: A couple of things that I that I would say and I and I think this will loop us back to something I really, really want to ask you about that I'm not gonna let you off the hook that has to do with life in Portland and we'll get there in a second. Sure. But so so I guess, you know, my comments about the, the the importance of good intentions were really had more to do with understanding how we got to a place, not necessarily abdicating the fact that we had got there or absolving the fact that we had got there, right? Um, so I don't think that necessarily that Making things easier or better for someone are, is, um, is made excusable or productive just because we understand how we got there. So I guess my answer to that is no, I, I don't necess- I, I absolutely think it's not a good thing. I don't think it's a good place to be in. I obviously, like you, have had a lot of, you know, hardship very different, not imposed on me as a child, but I mean self-imposed through the army and through training. Um, so I've had a lot of hardship, but I value that tremendously. And so for me, um, yeah, I think it's very, very dangerous to create environments where people feel too safe or they, or they try too hard to eliminate suffering and hardship. Uh, I just think it's important to understand where it comes from because then you can address it in a more productive way. And I'm not just telling you, you're a piece of shit and you've made this thing a disaster and, you know, uh, I try to understand, okay, well, how do we get there? Maybe you're just misguided, and maybe then we can, we can right the ship. Um, but I, what, what I would say also is everything that, that Jared and I try to focus on, because we have, we have completely lost confidence in the way information is delivered to us these days, um, I, am, I, I often will say that people cannot process information at the velocity and the volume at which it is delivered. Uh, and of course, Which I, is I a, I, it just, that's the first third of my book, the Iconist oh, is yeah, fantastic. Yeah.
2: So, so good.
0: We're like-minded in that way. So, and, and so we place tremendous, tremendous value on what you can verify and validate yourself. Now I acknowledge that means that I am going to automatically have pretty strong experiential bias. I am going to be biased by what I see and, and, and not have a big enough perspective. But what I'll, I'll tell you is this, um, Uh, I see a lot of young people coming out of, out of training. And I always tell people who bemoan the next generation, I'm like, look, that's a red herring. The next generation is not a shit show. They're actually pretty good sound, creative, fit, smart. There's a lot of, there's a lot of hope in the next generation. Um, And I would tell you the same thing of the college students that I see. So my personal experience with them, because I hear the same things, just this, this absolute, you know, disaster of a university experience. Well, all the co- recent college graduates that I know, whether they are now, and I, and I won't default to just, you know, the guys that are going through army training, but, you know, my my family, the kids of my friends, man, they're all unbelievably sound, unbelievably thoughtful. They're not mindless drones um, that, you know, that that can't be criticized. So I just I don't see it. You know what I mean? So I, I don't know how pervasive
2: it actually is. or That's, is just one. that's a, that's a massively good point. And I think that, um, uh, you know, one that, you know, it's, it, it kind of, it, it, it kind of gives me pause because it makes me think, where am I hearing all of this? <laughs> well, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and so right. that's, and that's yeah. why I'm going
0: to yeah. lead down the next road. Wait, wait, is, pause real quick. Let me. Know. I want to add all something right, in right, on this. Right.
1: Yeah, I want you to shut up. This is our show, Paul. And, you know, <laughs> I'm feeling emotionally unsafe with how silenced I've been. <laughs> oh, assholes. <laughs> so a couple of things here, just to add on to that, because I think this is really important. Uh, one is that not only do we have to question that where information is coming from, it's also about understanding how in, how these these organizations. Uh, These outlets are incentivized, which we talked a lot about before. So our media is coming from for-profit organizations, so they're incentivized for profit, which means they're incentivized for ad dollars, which means they're incentivized for you to click on shit that will make you outraged or get your attention without any kind of accountability, quite quite honestly. Uh, But most people don't think about it that way. So these outrageous actions, these things that uh, really capture a lot of people's attention, I, it's not that I don't think they're important. I absolutely do. In fact, uh, I've talked to both of you offline about this, that this has become an area I'm extremely interested in, uh, is this this intentionally ambiguous way of talking about problems that are not oriented towards a set solution. And I'll come back to that in a, set, in a second here. So I do think that it's a, that it's a massive problem. There's some, some brilliant thought leaders out there right now that are talking about this, some in your backyard there, JB. Uh, Bro, Weinstein is one of these. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is one of these. That the, both the coddling of the American mind, James Lindsay, a lot of these folks I've never even heard of until this issue started coming up. Again, this pandemic gave me the time and and uh, you know to start looking into things that had never really come across my radar. The other thing is that if you look at the incentive models of of these media outlets, they're going to hone in. Like, if there's 100 people walking down the street, they're going to find the one asshole who's doing something completely obnoxious, and that's what's going to get the attention, right? So it's to take this, uh, you know, it, this small segment of the larger population and then project it into our, our news feed to get us outraged, to make us click, to make us all think that this is what's happening on a mass scale. Like, this is the tidal wave that's coming. Now, it doesn't mean to write it off. It just means understand that there needs to be some fact checking going on here. Like, is this really a problem uh, that is taking over all American cities? Is what's happening in Portland happening in Portland because Portland is more? It has more the environment that allows that kind of behavior. Because I really have a hard time seeing that kind of shit going down in Charlotte or For- or Charlotte North Carolina or Fayetteville North Carolina without there being some citizen uprisings and all kinds of you know. It, it, you know, I have to ask myself, like, is this because the other place was Seattle, right? You know, what's unique about these cities that has allowed this kind of behavior to take hold? Uh, those are the kind of questions that I have to start asking myself and then really just start to say, well, what's really happening? And that's where we get to talking to somebody so, who's on the ground um, and you come into yeah, play. Let's, so let's
0: let's prove that model right now. And, and Jamie, you tell us, because this is what we say all the time. It's like, look, I've been, to, you know, I, I've traveled the country from coast to coast and from, you know, from north to southeast to west and i have yet to experience this dystopian apocalypse that i've been told exists out there you're in you're in ground zero man i mean i was in the belly of the beast for a little while in san francisco and i found the same thing people were pleasant and polite and doing the thing and i didn't i didn't see anything that i was told i was going to i was going to see so i mean you're absolutely at ground zero of what we're being told is the end of the world i mean what are you seeing you live there man
2: well i would lead into it with this thought and then i'll comment on it one is that you know one of the things that i the the things that i've kind of conclusions that i came to at the beginning of COVID because i was home and i was turning on the news is i turned off the news i um and uh one of the reasons i turned off the news is but when as COVID continued and then the protests started um i was getting upset uh i also um and it just got to a real extreme on, say, I was watching CNN, which is the example that I'll give. It just got to a real extreme in terms of how just the frenzy of rabid negativity was like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. And then I'm watching the ads and I'm watching all these pharmaceutical ads for Wellbutrin and, you know, Cymbalta and, and wow. low RT. And, and I'm like, you know, pharmaceutical industry is the second most profitable industry in the world, only to energy. I have a degree in economics, right? So I'm like, God, these are some, these are all pharmaceutical ads. And then there were ads for lawyers trying to find people for class action lawsuits to get for the ads that CNN was, for uh, for the pharmaceutical CNN was advertising five years ago. But I was also listening to NPR, and I noticed that the coverage on NPR was completely different than the frenzy of CNN. And I had this moment where I realized there is no such thing as a right-wing media and there is no such thing as a left, a liberal media. There's only, to Jared's point, a corporate media. The only reason those media companies, CNBC, MSNBC, Fox, and CNN exist, is to sell you soap. To sell you products, the only reason they exist. You know, to me, you know, like, you know, you, I go on. One of the things that I got was like the two major hosts around in the evening, just going week after week, day after day on these tirades against Trump. Okay, so to me, when I don't like someone, you know what I do? I ignore them. I don't talk about them. I go worry about something else constructive. Okay, so if I'm one of these talk show hosts, and I truly believe that Trump is the worst person that ever hit the face of the earth. What I would do is I would go to my bosses, the producers at CNN or MSNBC, uh, and I would say, if you continue to run Trump 24 hours a day, I'm not gonna work here anymore, I'm gonna quit because you're giving him the advertising. And Trump's very aware of it. He knows, he, he, a lot of the things he says, he does very deliberately to dominate the news cycle. Yeah. Okay? That's true. And, um, and they play right into it. They play right into it.
1: Well, can I add something so, to that, Jamie, real quick here? Yeah, let me, let me, yeah, yeah. Let me just, go ahead.
2: The, the last point that I wanted to make on that, and then we can talk about Portland, or hear your point and then talk about Portland, is, um, well, why don't they do that? Because, they, they don't, they, because they're not really principled about it. Because their real goal, these, these hosts, is to stay in their 5 and $10 million brownstone and have dinner at Mr. Chow's. That's really what's more important to them because there are people in circumstances like that that do quit, right? You know, there's that great movie, you know, there's a great movie called The Insider and uh, Lowell Bergman experiences this corporate influence while he's at 60 Minutes and he quits, right? So, because he was a principled person. So, there was something about the extreme nature and pressure of covid and the unrest in the country, that which I still don't even know what how much that really is because of how much, to your point, Paul, is being fed to me. Um, that made me go, uh, and then I would listen to NPR, which is still liberal media, but it was not a frenzy. It's not pub, It's not driven by ads. So the, they were seeming con, very moderate. Like the disparity between NPR and CNN. Grew in a became the Grand Canyon. I used to kind of see them as the same, but COVID and the protest drove it into the Grand Canyon to the way they were covering the news. And that's when I realized there is no liberal media, there's only corporate media. And um, I decided to change the way in during COVID that I would, that I would, uh, because it's the best pandemic ever, oh. that I would, uh, cons- I decided to change the way that I would consume information based on. What's occurred here? So yeah. anyway, that's the only point that I wanted to make, Jared. You said you wanted to. Well, I just wanted to add something on there about the whole thing about Trump, and this is
1: what be, it goes to the heart of this: is that Trump is great for whatever media outlet there is. So they love to. If you look at the bottom line, I mean, Trump actually pointed this out, uh, he, and, and I'm not a fan. By the way, right? So, this is not a indif- This is the fact, The you know, one thing that he is smart at is and controlling I'm not the making narrative.
2: My point to- I'm not commenting either way. I'm not making a point. Oh, yeah, to- no,
1: I'm, I'm pretty open about it. You know, Paul can't say because, you know, he is still active duty military, whatever his opinion is. So, we will not ask that opinion. But my personal opinion
0: is that Have I ever been shy about my opinion? Hey, man, listen to me. Yeah, you know, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I'm an army brat. You know, I, I, I get it. Uh, so, the, uh, the thing I was going to say here is that I think Trump even pointed this out in the correspondence dinner. He said, He said, I'm good for all of your businesses, and you know it. You guys have been making so much money off of my presidency, and they all kind of laugh, like MSNBC, you know CNN. He draws attention to him, and he sends attention right back to them. It is a beautiful marriage of profit, and we have to understand it's like, guys, they're not really at war. It's like
2: professional wrestling. It's performance art. We have to understand that. Okay, and to that point. Like, the, 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 where that needs to land, and the point of that, what you need to realize when you say something like that is n- these media outlets do not care about. You. They don't give a shit. They do not care about getting you accurate information. They do not care about your life improving. They do not care about you being informed. They solely exist. To keep you transfixed to them so they can sell more advertising for the products that they sell. Yeah. Okay. And a really good example of this, of how they they choose to run Trump, says a lot of things. He reminds me of my grandfather when my grandfather got dementia. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like my grandfather used humor to cover up dementia. Okay. So it took my grandmother a year and a half to figure out that he was actually demented. (laughs) Because half the stuff was crazy, but half the stuff he was saying was to just get our goat, and that's how we masked it. I, I'm not really trying to comment on tr- uh, that. I'm not trying to say t- Trump is demented or not demented, but I do think he very, he is uh, um, uh, dumb like a fox or crazy like a fox. I think he says a lot of things because he knows that Anderson Cooper and CNN and Don and, and, and Lemon are going to froth at the mouth, and they're going to run it. Oh, yeah. right. He says a lot of things purely like the chlor- hydrochloroquine thing. He's got the best doctors in the world monitoring him. He's like, I'm on it. Okay. Now that was a perfectly good example of he knows the liberal media is gonna go ape shit when he says that. Okay. Was he on it? Of course not. He just says it, he says it dry, and he's doing that constantly because he knows it's free advertising at the top of the news cycle. And that's what in his mind, if he if he dominates the news cycle, he dominates the election. Yeah. This is because that's what got him in in the first place. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but you have to understand that for these executives at the, at these news outlets, it, it it is a choice. They are choosing to do it. They are choosing to run him, and they are choosing to let him dominate the news cycle because they can. They get higher ratings. They make more ad dollars.
1: Yeah, it's a good sense.
2: Really yeah, and a really good example of. Uh, for, for the listeners to understand that it's a choice is, is to compare it to the mass shootings, right? Uh, you know, five, six, seven years, up to five, six, seven years ago, when there would be a mass shooting, we would always hear the name 500 times. Then there became this conversation in America where, you know, if we didn't say their name, it would happen less. Well, you started to see this very interesting trend about five to seven years ago in the media where, um, you, they stop saying the name over and over again. They stop saying the name at all on CNN. Okay, so what what that means is there are people at the top that can make these choices. Choices are being made, so there is a choice to be made. Trump's good for business. Mm-hmm. He gets the ratings. We sell more soap. We sell more ad dollars. We get more eyes. War is good for business. Social unrest is good for business. To your point earlier, and there are people making choices. No. It's not just. It's not just. You know, a train. You know, uh, we're not just being swept along on the river here. There's executives making choices that are business choices to create revenue, and that's all that it really comes down to.
0: So, so, uh, and I go back to my original, the thing that I originally talked about with the the air conditioning, and I ask myself, okay, did they arrive here through some pernicious plan? Is there somebody in the back room or on the, you know, on the top floor twisting their handlebar? Mustache, or did they just evolve to this out of the way that they were raised in the business? This is this is what they do for a living. This is how they provide for their family. Can, and the reason I can, that I, I have the answer to that question. I'm sorry, I cut you off. Well, sorry. and the, the only reason I throw it out there is because I I like to think that if I think through it that way, it will allow me to positively reflect on what's going on and appropriately respond. So I'm not wasting energy being pissed at those people for what they do. Instead, I'm investing positive energy, thinking through, it and then saying,
2: "Oh, you know what." I'm going to walk away from this. I'm going to shut it off. You know, and and that's why we're talking about it. You know, hopefully what we're communicating to anybody listening is if you find yourself getting upset by all this stuff, there's an agenda that's not your good. It's not the public good. So shut it off or and Google specific things that you want to see. Uh, on the news, if you want to know what's going on in the world, you can look at Yahoo, and every major story will come up in three seconds, and you can scan what you want to look at and walk away from it, not have it on the background or in front of you for three hours on a television set. You can get this news without upsetting yourself. So that's hopefully what we're trying to tell people. We're not just complaining. But, you you know, the point that I would like to make, you know, just to respond to what you just said, is, you know, what is the intention? Well, I think it's very clear what the intention is. The intention is to make money, By selling products. That's not a bad intention. I'm a capitalist. I believe I sell my services. And I want, I love the fact that I grow I'm in America and I have the most opportunity to sell the most services to the most diverse and interesting range of people. I'm I am a capitalist through and through. But I think what, to, to get really specific about what that motivation is and where we've gone astray, is we've gotten to this point, and again, I'm a pure capitalist saying this, that wants to continue to be a pure capitalist, okay? I have, worked, come, I have come from very difficult circumstances to put myself in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a situation where I can profit and live a good life, and I'm still working to improve that life every day, and I love my ability to do that, and I want everyone to have the ability to do that. That being said, we've gotten to the point where we programmed ourselves and we worship this capitalism like a god, like a perfect god. And what we're starting to experience right now is a toxic capitalism. And with, and because what 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 like so if you look at what what, what that becomes, like this, let's talk specifically about the media and these ad sales and the pharmaceutical ads, just more and more and more and more and more. Um, when the goal of something is just completely unfettered, unchecked growth, just more of everything with no thought behind it. Well, that is the same characteristic of cancer and it eventually kills the host. So capitalism is important, but it has to be thoughtful. It can't just be more, 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 more. And what's causing it is just the more, 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 more without the thought. And every once in a while we check ourselves Because when we stop saying the names of these mass shooters, it improves the social good. And that's a case where this more, 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 more machine, media machine checked itself and they got thoughtful and they made an improvement and it it stayed an improvement and it's a good improvement and it makes us safer. So again, more, 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 more without thought behind it, again, is the same characteristic of cancer and it eventually kills the host.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's the Brian, crew. you
2: just you just you just
0: tossing us best pandemic ever softballs, man. I mean, yeah. like you are describing exactly why, you know, the, the, there's a silver lining to all this because it's it's allowing people to figure all that out, and it might be, you know, it might be that it might be the um, uh, the chemotherapy to the to the to the capitalist cancer, you know, in, in some way. But but again, I, I don't want I don't I don't want to lose the opportunity. To get your perspective on what we think, or what the world has been told is happening in your neck of the woods, and what your actual experience is. So, what is what is it? Has a day in the life been like there?
2: Well, I mean, it's a really interesting thing, you know. I mean, there's a lot I can say. I live a mile and a half from where all the violence is occurring, and outside of one protest that went by my house that was borderlining on a riot, um, in all the last four or five months. That was the only thing that made me nervous. And my car was on the street, the riot went down MLK, which is down the, the far end of the street from me, uh, a long block away. But then there's a short block to 7th Street when it came back a few hours later at night, I thought maybe it should roll my, I should move my car in. So I rolled up on it to see what the, you know, because to me, a pro, uh, you know, there's protest energy and there's riot energy. Yeah. And I rolled up on this thing and, you know, it was riot energy. I couldn't tell who was wearing a COVID mask and who was Antifa, and people were breaking away, and I felt incredibly unsafe. Now, right on that corner, uh, there's a guy, the, there's a woman uh, that lives in my corner. She, her boyfriend is a 25-year Portland police veteran, and, I, and we, he, I, he's on our email. He helps us out in the neighborhood when things happen in the neighborhood. We have kind of a neighborhood watch thing going on, but I'd never talk to the guy so right the day the day maybe a day or two after that happened I walked up to him because I'd never talked to him before the cop he was off duty he was doing some gardening for his girlfriend and I was wearing my mask and I said uh be a pretty good time to be a bank robber right (laughs) And, and and he laughed at me and I started asking him about it and you know I saw a man a white man who was deeply hurt you know um Here's a guy that's been a 25 year that, he, you know, he said, I'm a tw- I've am been on the force for 25 years. I've done a lot of work in the black community and I'm being made the enemy and I'm a good person. And I've, I've lived my life doing good work, protecting people. And it's really hard for me to be turned into a villain in the place where I've chosen to spend my life. And I could see there was real pain uh, for him. And I feel as a person that grew up in you know, environments where there was a lot of oppressive law enforcement and helicopters and stuff like that. I can only imagine what it's like for the the the, the person that's engaging in the law enforcement. They're constantly going into da- dangerous situations. Um, and uh, you know, I it's a it, there's an oversimplification of the problem going on, right? Um, there's a lot of things that are being called racism that are not racism. They're they're othering. As human beings, we other. Part of our evolutionary biology. You know, the guy with the different face paint, we have to be fearful of them in terms of fight or flight because they may be the enemy. That's not racism. It's racialism maybe, but it's not racism. When I was a kid, racism was, why purr? You know, I'm going to get you. You know, it was like, it was like really clear. The I want to destroy. Get that get out, go back to Africa. You know, that was, I'm a person of mixed race, right? So, you know, racism was a very clear thing. Now racism is any sort of racial discomfort becomes racism. And I don't think that's racism. I think it's othering. I'm always concerned with intent. I'm a person of mixed race that grew up in brown environments that lives mostly around white people, okay? And people say racially insensitive things to me all the time that are white executives. And I look at their intent, they're not, they don't know, they're not trying to say something racist. They're saying something that's uncomfortable or they don't know. So I quickly assess the intent. And if I don't think the intent is bad, I don't chalk it up in my brain as a racist executive. I chalk it up in my brain as somebody that is racially unexperienced, that's a well-intended human. Okay. But to go back to your point of like what's going on in Portland, there's a five-square block area where there's a lot of violence going on, and there's a couple hundred people involved. There's four million people in this state. So the actual violence going on in terms of square footage, how big is the state of Oregon? It could be a country, okay? And people involved is so far below 1% that it wouldn't even show up on a pie graph. So how important is it? And how important, sh- so, so is is it really, is the sky falling? And again, I've had a moment of clarity and a moment of change in this Podcast, first time it's ever happened to me, ever. When you made the point, Paul, of, because I, up until this conversation, I wasn't thinking about it. I I was thinking, yeah, the world's on fire. That's how I've been living and I'm just sitting here. What I do when the world's on, when bad things are going on is I sit and I make art. That's part because that art will come out in a year or two and hopefully it'll contribute to the world. The other reason I do it is very selfish. It's an existential exercise in not getting constantly upset by what's going on and being fed to me in the media. And what I've realized the, in this conversation, I've had a real-time moment of epiphany where I've realized I don't know that the world is on fire right now. This is just in listening to you, Paul Tulin. I think I've been fed that because I live a mile and a half, maybe even a mile, not even a mile and a half from where the epicenter of this is, right over the Broadway Bridge. I'm in a little area called the Elliott Neighborhood or Irvington. I can walk to that bridge in seven minutes. That bridge is five minutes walk, uh, 10 minutes walk maybe, uh, to where all this is all going down. So I'm very close to it. And uh, outside of like me taking on the paranoia that's been fed to me by the media, if I were really to... Take have this real time moment while I'm talking to you guys and actually go, well, what's ha- actually happened being a mile from there, a mile and a half from there, that one incident where they walked by? And that when I asked the police officer about that, um, hey, uh, that didn't feel like a protest. That felt like a riot. And he said to me, yeah, we were told to that we that they to completely stay away that they couldn't even see a police officer or a cop car because they thought it would tip into a riot. So my feeling of being concerned for my safety when I, you know, I I grew up in those circumstances. I know when something is a violent thing that's about to spill over and I know what a peaceful protest is. I know what both are. Okay, so, um, yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, I've had that realization as we're talking on this conversation that I think is being fed to me. Yeah, you
1: know, something I want to add to that real quick. And here's what's pretty apparent to me is that,
2: yeah, I'm sorry. Hold on
0: one second, because there is no way that this is just, this will just pass. Okay. Jared is a successful businessman. You know, he's well known. I am, but a humble government employee. I'm just the sidekick here. There's no way that we're going past this moment without acknowledging that I actually got, the great Jamie Mustard to have an epiphany on this podcast. And he said, he had, I'm not letting that go. There's right. No way. Yeah. In
2: other That's words, in other true. words, and other than that one moment where nothing actually happened, but I got nervous. Okay. Uh, which I should have been. Uh, there's been five months of this. Okay. Maybe more. Right. There's not been one other anything other than some people getting, you know, weirded out at each other at the grocery, mar- grocery store. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just being fried but that's like middle class people. There, there hasn't been one moment of anything that I've seen that's been threatening or strange, and I'm I'm right in it. So so yeah, I'm realizing that I've been taking on what's been fed to me, and I'm feeling kind of silly well, talking I, to you. <laughs> no, I mean yeah, no, it's it goes back to what we were saying
1: earlier too about uh, if you take a hundred people, you're gonna find the one person who's acting like a shithead, and you're gonna you can project that and blow that thing up because it will get people to click on it. Oh, there's this guy. He did this thing. Let's all go and watch this thing. And then it starts to be spun into this narrative that this is what's going on. This is, this is happening everywhere. When you've, you know, you said in the entire state of Portland, perfect example, or the entire state of Oregon, you know, this one square block, or how you say or, five square yeah, blocks, it's, yeah. it's minimal. Now it doesn't mean that it's not important, but it also goes back to the choice that the media has. or that If they constantly and there's all kinds of layers of narrative uh, yeah. you know, problems within the way the media has been covering this, apparently, I, from what I hear. But uh, they are making the choice to keep the attention focused on Portland because why? It helps to work towards another narrative that helps to drive more outrage and ad dollars because it goes back to that underlying incentive model that we talked about earlier.
2: Yeah, and in my business book, The Iconist, The Art and Sci- Science of Standing Out, I teach this method of primal laws of how to drive action towards buying products or any kind of action is repetitive monolithic imagery, and that's what we're being fed. Yeah, well, it's, and it can it can drive good, it can drive positive capitalism and grab attention to your offering, but it can also drive. Uh, paranoia, and a very, very false sense of what's going on in the world.
1: Well, listen, this that tells me right there, we, we have absolutely got to have a part two because our time is up, um, okay. but we we need to schedule right away after this call a second part of this because I really want us to talk about this, Jamie, in particular, and I want you to keep this top of your mind, what I see you doing in your work and your book and how it relates to the moment that we're in right now, one of the ways is that when we look at like the protests or the riots or the narratives that are being talked about, the things going on in academia, one thing that is very apparent to me is there's a lot of screaming and yelling and uh, philosophizing, but there is no clear, clear outcome or thing to actually change or shift. It's all ambiguous. It's in this gray space. And that, I believe, is intentional. And when we've, you and I've talked about the clarity of message, the way I put it like this is, you know, in a lot of the work I do with folks is helping people to clarifier to uh communicate a powerful vision of the future that moves other people to action but that action has to have a clear end result and that's what is missing here okay
2: so to set up to set up part two i'll say this uh, and then we can be done i can i i i think in part two we could i can tell you what that focus and clarity needs to be uh so that uh So that whenever you hear a piece of information or whenever you're being told some sort of narrative, uh, I can give you a monitor that will allow you to know instantaneously whether it's something you should be listening to or not. And we can and I'll tell you what that is in part two. I love it. I love it.
0: And then I'm just going to say this, Danny: The world is out there. It's not just a children's book, man. Like it's a human book. That message is so brutally important. Like I said, that, that's going to be the thing I, of all our podcasts. Yes, that rises to the level of I'm, I'm, I'm tattooing that title on my chest. Uh,
1: and that's not just because it's at the reading level that Paul can understand either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to
2: drop the text in, in the next couple of weeks. I'll send you a, I'll give you guys a sneak peek.
1: Awesome. awesome. That would be great. Jamie, this yeah. is great. I can't wait for part two uh so yeah so for the folks listening obviously our typical sign off here you should be subscribing to the best pandemic ever if you have not shame on you and yes i'm trying to make you feel emotionally unsafe right now uh so go ahead and uh, take a second subscribe to the best pandemic ever pass it on to your friends and more importantly stay tuned for part two of our awesome conversation with jamie mustard you don't want to miss that
2: thanks jamie thank you guys for having me thank you really really powerful